invite you to open your Bibles tonight to Psalm 80. <clears throat> Psalm 80, it's been our, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, habit for the last several years, seven years, I think, maybe eight already, where in the summertime, in the evenings, we are making our way through the Psalms, and uh, tonight uh, we are picking that back up, and we are in Psalm 80. This is in the middle of the Psalms of Asaph. Uh, the Asaphites were um, temple singers in Jerusalem, and uh, so this uh, psalm is probably written by one of the members of the Asaphites. The, the context here is the uh, historical context is the fall of the northern ten tribes of Israel in 721, if you re remember your uh, church history. 721, uh, the Assyrians swept down from the north, and they captured uh, all the ten tribes of Israel to the north and took, carried them away into captivity, and they never returned. And so it's devastating judgment of God. And this psalm was written in that context, seeking to make sense of why this has happened or how this happened and where is God and uh, are we are going to be okay? I mean, the people in Judah are wrestling. If this happened to the tribes of the north, what about us? And so tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 80. I've titled it, A Prayer for the Spiritually Helpless. Let's give our attention to God's word tonight. Psalm 80, beginning at verse 1. Give, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. It can also be translated, turn us again, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your, right, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Oh God in heaven, now as we open your word, we just pray again that you'd give us ears to hear it and to see the beauty of our God and our Savior Jesus uh, and for the salvation that we have in him. Lord, I pray for uh, your spirit's help. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my uh, memories as I came to Psalm 80 uh, just... Uh, came very clearly to me again. Uh, one of my favorite songs 
are songs that I clearly remember growing up as a kid at Coopersville Christian Forum Church is Psalm 80, singing, <clears throat> Great Shepherd who leadest thy people in love. Midst cherubim dwelling, shine thou from above. In might, come and save us. Thy people restore. And then that last line, and we shall be saved when thy face shines once more. Uh, that line, for whatever reason, uh, appealed to me. There's so much drama in that line. There's so much desperate need in that line. It's just, it's down to the very basics. They're not asking for, for external things. They're not even asking uh, in this psalm for deliverance from the enemy. They're asking for deliverance from themselves, from their own sinful, uh, traitorous hearts. They're asking for God to come and, and turn their heart because if God doesn't come and restore them, turn them again, they are going to be lost. They need to be saved. And God is their only hope. God's their only possible help. They will be saved when and only when and if and only if God shines his face. If he does not do that, then there is no hope for them at all. Uh, they will disappear like the northern tribes. God must intervene or they will be lost. I think we can all <clears throat> relate to that. Uh, who hasn't, uh, upon discovering the, the truth about yourself, you know, you, many of you have grown up in the church and uh, you, you sense, you know, you think you're a pretty good kid, pretty good, uh, pretty good Christian, and then God allows um, sin to enter your life in a way that exposes the truth about you. And you realize that um, there's no help for you. There's no cure. There's no hope. There's no program. Uh, you cannot fix yourself. You cannot save yourself. Uh, there is one and one only hope for you, and that is that God would in intervene and change your heart. And if he does not, you'll be lost. The old King James Version uh, has the prayer of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verse 18. Turn me, and I will be turned. Turn me, God, and then I will be turned. And that's the prayer of Psalm 80. Uh, the psalm is, uh, you'll notice it's broken up into three parts. There are, there are uh, each part is delineated by the refrain, verse 3, verse 7, and verse 19. And in each of the refrains, there's a little addition to the name of God. So in verse 3, restore us, O God, let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. In verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. And then in verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts, as the covenant name of God is invoked. And so we see a progression as the writer is wrestling with the tragedy of what's happened and then laying hold of uh, what he knows to be true about God. I've, I've divided this uh, into four parts since the last stanza has two separate parts. And so we'll look first at the plea, verses 1 through 3, then at the pain of God's people, verses 4 through 7, then the perplexion of verses 8 through 13, and finally the prayer, verses 14 through 19. <clears throat> Let's just start with uh, the plea then, verses 1 through 3. You'll notice this is a very passionate and bold psalm. Uh, the writer makes many demands of God. It's full of imperatives, commands, all directed towards God. Give ear, shine forth, stir up your might, come and save us. It's a very bold prayer. 
But it is a boldness that's not rooted in self-centered pride or a sense of entitlement. It's a boldness that's rooted in desperation and a conviction concerning the truth about God. If you remember the, uh, the blind men crying out to Jesus, I believe at Jericho, right? Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And they're just crying out and the crowds are trying to shut them up. And the, 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 the more the crowds tried to quiet them, the louder they got, Lord, son of David. Have mercy on us. There's a, there's a desperateness in their prayer, and there's a desperateness in this prayer too. But it, it, is, it is not all desperation because it's a desperation laying hold of truths about God. And two truths particularly, first, that God is the shepherd of Israel. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. The God to whom he, is, he calls is not a strange, distant deity, but is the loving shepherd of Israel, the one to whom they belong. Boys and girls, if you're in some danger, if someone is trying to kidnap you, say, or, or um, you're in some deep trouble, who would you rather ask for help? Uh, a stranger that you've never met before or your parents? I think we'd all say uh, mom and dad. And the reason, of course, you'd say mom and dad is because mom and dad know you and they love you and they're committed to you. In fact, they're legally obligated to take care of you. You can just say you have to. And that's the dynamic of Psalm 80. Um, they belong to God. God is not a stranger. They, they are appealing as sheep to a shepherd. They're, they're, he's appealing to the God who has been Israel's shepherd from the beginning, the, who, who brought them out of the bondage of Egypt and, and led them through the desert and brought them into the land of promise, all by his own power, all uh, according to his infinite wisdom and skill, and all because of love. All because of love. You see, God was Israel's shepherd, not by their choice, but by God's own choice. And it was a, it's a confounding sort of choice. People around the world who knew the Israelites of the day would shake their head. All the other nations chose their gods and manufacture their gods, and yet Israel is saying that the living God uh, chose them. God himself in Deuteronomy, remember, says to them, don't think I chose you because you were so strong and so attractive, so good looking, that you had so many things to offer, and none of those things were true. You are a stubborn, stiff-necked people. So why did he choose them? Because he determined to. He'd set his love upon them, and he chose them then to be his sheep, the sheep of his pasture, the flock under his care. And consequently, the writer prays this in the confidence that God, as the shepherd of Israel, can rightly be called upon to aid them in their distress. You are our shepherd. Come and help us. Secondly, notice he sees God as the mighty king and Lord. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. That God is a God in the midst of his people. He, he dwells in the most holy place. There, if you remember the, the ark that was in the most holy place with the, the angels, the cherubim with their wings outstretched facing each other. And God said, there I will, my presence will dwell. Enthroned there as the, as the rightful king of Israel. The Lord of Israel. And they prayed then to their enthroned king. And the writer is praying, not just for Judah, notice uh, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come and save us. So Ephraim and Manasseh belong to the northern tribes. 
Benjamin belongs to the southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And even though these tribes had split uh, 200, 250 years ago, yet uh, the writer prays as though they're still one people, one nation under God, as they ought to have been, and cries for help. Come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And the prayer calls back and remembers the promise that God had spoken to his people and and the promise that would be spoken to them uh, every Sabbath at the the worship service at the temple, the ironic blessing, right? This is the blessing that God had had told, commanded Aaron to give to the people. Say this to the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's a promise. It's not a wish. It's it's, It's a promise from God for his people, and now the the writer appeals to God on the basis of his own word, what God had promised week after week after week. He just says, yes, Lord, do that. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. This is what we need. This is our hope. Save us, oh God, let your face shine. That's the plea. And the plea is, is motivated, of course, by this great pain, verses 4 through 6, the pain that God has brought to Israel. O God, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. They are in great distress and, and God has done this, right? You, God, have fed them with the bread of tears. You gave them tears to drink. God has done these things. Their shepherd has done these things. That's the reason for their pain. Notice he doesn't ask why, not here at least. The question here is how long? How long? That, the reason why, well, God had promised to do this, right? God had promised us way back when Moses first established the covenant. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me and refuse to repent, well, these are the things I will do for you. I I will scatter you among the nations. And, And so God was being faithful to his word. The prophets had been sent to Israel time and time again to tell them, listen, this is what's going to happen if you do not repent. And they did not repent. And so this is what happened. So the writer knows why. The question is, how long? How long will God be angry? How long will God refuse their prayers? How long will God give them tears for their bread? How long before God raises up his saving might? The saving might that he had exercised when he brought them out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into the land. When would God rise himself and rescue them? And the, the, the way that he speaks of God here is he He's, he's remembering God and thinking of God as the captain of the armies of heaven. So there's a new title here in verse 4 and 7. This stands as bracketed. O Lord God of hosts. The hosts are the armies of heaven. The um, Boys and girls, if you remember the story in 2 Kings 6 when Elisha and his servant are in, in a city and the Aramean army um, gathers around them during the night. And so when Elisha and the servant wake up, in the morning, the servant looks out the window, and there's the whole army of, of the Arameans. And, uh, and he's terrified. And Elisha says, don't worry, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'd love to see the look on the servant's face as he looks at Elisha and himself, <clears throat> Elisha and himself, 
and then the whole host of the Aramean army. And Elisha, of course, then prays, God, open his eyes so he can see. And, and the Lord opens his eyes, and behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's the hosts of heaven. That's the, armies, that's the army of God. And, and the writer here is, is saying, God, raise up that army. Send that army of heaven, not to defeat our enemies, but to, to turn us to drive away the enemy of our soul, right? The, the desire of our flesh, the pride of eyes, our love for idols. Open our eyes to see the glory of God. Open, uh, give us hearts to love Him. Give us a heart to worship Him. God, save us from ourselves, O Lord God of hosts. That's His prayer. And there's a perplexity that's in the middle of all this, verses 8 through 13. Because, you see, the, the writer reminds God of what God has done. You, God, brought a vine out of Egypt. You, God, drove out the nations and planted it. You, God, cleared the ground for it. And it took deep root and filled the land. He's just remind, reminding God of his, of his work of redemption. That Israel is this vine that God took out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. And under God's watchful care and, and, and his shepherding, that vine had grown and grown and grown. And so that it was a mighty, mighty vine. Its branches were covering the mountains. It reached from the river to the sea. And of course, the writer's thinking here of the, the um, highlight of Israel's history, the days of King David and Solomon. When the nation had been united, when the nation had been great, when the glory of the, uh, of, of, of the nation was so much that the, the queen of Sheba comes and is astonished and admires and all the nations of the world hold uh, Israel in high regard and envy them because the, of their power and the greatness of their God, the wealth that they have. That's, that's the, the glory days of Israel. But that was 250 years ago. And the glory of Israel then only deepens the pain of Israel now. Now it's a plundered vineyard. Now the walls are all broken down. The enemies casually make their way through it, plucking its fruit as they desire. The wild animals uh, ravage and forest through it. Uh, they, they feed on it. it it's, it's just in shambles. And, and the question here that the writer asks is, is why? Why then? In light of all that you did for Israel, all that you promised and all that you fulfilled, why then have you, have you broken down its walls? Why would you make Israel so great only to let it be destroyed? Why, why would you bother with it? Why would you make them so glorious and, and only to leave them to their sin and to be plundered by their enemies? It, it, it doesn't make sense. The, the, the writer is just, is, is just wrestling with the what God had promised and what God had accomplished and the reality of what he sees now. Well, God's people often wrestle with, with, with questions like this. We're, we're often perplexed. Why does God bless, give a blessing and then, and, on one hand and then take it away with the other? We, we all know of people who've been longing for a pregnancy and, and then God finally gives one and there's great joy and, and, and then there's a miscarriage. Or, or a couple's not been able to have a child, and then finally they do have a child, and they celebrate this miracle baby that God has given to them, and then in a few years there's the diagnosis of cancer or an accident. 
And that's, that's exactly the perplexity that, that he's facing. You see, the, what's happening here is not just the astounding nature of God's ways in a, in, a, in a personal situation. This isn't just the loss of a loved one. This seems to be the loss of the whole redemptive project. This, this feels like God giving up on saving Israel. This, it feels like the curtain is being drawn. God abandoning his covenant. It, it brings to mind the words of Psalm 77 and another psalm of Asaph. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Those are terrifying questions. I can't imagine a more terrifying thought than God is done with you. He's done. He's been patient. He's been patient. And yet, in, in the light of your sin, in the light of your rebellion, in the light of your stubbornness, it's done. The curtain has been drawn. It's over. Don't bother praying. Maybe you've experienced that sort of fear, that terror. I can't think of a, a greater fear than that God would, would say, it's, I'm done, I'm out. I'll, I'll just leave you to yourself. And that's what the writer is experiencing. Is this how to make, is this the interpretation of what's happened to the northern tribes? Is, is this where, where we are? And is it just a matter of time now before Judah follows suit? How do you make sense of this in light of all the promises of God? How do you make light of this in, in, in light of what you had believed about the faithfulness of God? And so, so what you see the writer do here, then in, in light of this perplexion of things that he doesn't understand, uh, facts that he can't reconcile, what he, what he does is he goes by faith um, to his conviction concerning God. This is what I know to be true about God. That God is good and God is faithful. And though I don't understand how these things are working, I am convinced, you, you can see it in, as he writes, convinced that God can be appealed to and that God will hear. And so in verse 14, we, we find this final prayer. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. For the son whom you made strong for yourself. He's convinced God has not abandoned them. God has not let them go. And so he calls for God to help. The reference to the son here is clearly meant as a reference to Israel as the nation. But the thought is expanded in verse 17 where an individual seems to mind it. As he says, let your hand be on the man of your right hand and the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. The prayer you see is that God would raise up another king like David. That God would raise up someone who was endued with divine power and not only able to handle the Assyrians, but much more importantly, someone who would be able to deal with the essential problem, the stubborn, idolatrous, rebellious hearts of Israel. That's what was needed. Have you ever talked to an addict? A sober addict. Uh, someone who, who knows that what they're doing will kill them. It will destroy their life. They know that absolutely without question. And they can't break free. 
Jude, the, the writer here, as he sees the northern ten tribes and, and reflects on Judah's case, the idolatry is everywhere. The fickleness of, of Israel is well, it's, it's, it's evident to everyone. And it's clear it will destroy them. But they can't change themselves. They can't fix themselves. They need someone to come and turn the heart of the people back. Someone who will be able to keep them from ever turning away again. Someone who's able to make them steadfast in their love for God. Notice verse 18. Then, after you send the Son of, your, the son of Man, then we shall not turn back from you. We won't turn back then if you, if you deal with that essential problem. This is their hope. They need God to send a shepherd and a king who will be able to give them life. Give us life, he says, and we will call upon your name. This is what we need. And he closes with the refrain, then restore us, O Lord God of hosts, the covenant name of God, let your face shine that we may be saved. It's a beautiful, powerful prayer. That's where the psalm ends, but praise God, it's not where the story ends. Because we know in the pages of Scripture that in the fullness of time, God heard and answered that prayer. He did raise up a son of, the, of his right hand. He sent a king and a shepherd like David, and yet so much more. He sent a son to do exactly what was so desperately needed, someone who was able to come and break the iron bars of sin and death that enslaves the human heart. And so Jesus came, he said in Luke 4, to set the captives free. Jesus took Psalm 80 for himself. We find that Jesus refers to himself as the true vine in reference to verse 80, verse 14. Jesus is the son of man. That was his favorite term for himself. You find it 80 times in the Gospels, the son of man, as we find here in 80, verse 17, Psalm 80, 17. Jesus uh, wraps himself in this psalm and, and, and sees it as pointing to himself and his saving work, and that's what makes it so precious for us. Because the truth is that we face the same dilemma that Israel did. We, we find within ourselves this same weakness, uh, the same bondage left to ourselves to sin. We can't fix ourselves. We can't, we can't change our own heart. And, and even when we come to faith, we find this, this preponderance, this devastating propensity to wander away from God. Why, why would we do that? Have you ever just asked yourself, why do I do that? Why do I ignore the word? Why do I ignore prayer? Why do I run so hard after these, these idols that have never proven to be of any help but only bring death? I was talking with Josh Vanderwell last week, I believe, and he was talking about um, raising sheep and, and how incredibly frustrating that is, uh, that, that they're such frail, foolish creatures. They, they, they will injure themselves in the most incredible, unthinkable ways, and and they won't, wouldn't live 24 hours outside of the pasture, and yet they devote themselves with, with the, the limited brain power they have. They exercise all that to looking for ways to get out of the pasture. They just have this suicide wish. Well, that's an apt description for sinners. How often have we found that our hearts constantly turning away from God, who is life itself, and, and eagerly running down the paths of the devil's lies. I mean, it's just confounding. Haven't you ever confounded yourself? Have you ever just looked in the mirror and said, what in the world are you thinking? What are you doing? Of course you have, if you've been honest with yourself. We can all sing with full integrity, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. 
right? Prone to leave the God I love. I love Jesus, and yet I, I so easily walk away from him. So there's only one hope for us, just as there was for Israel, right? That God would shine his face upon us and restore us and turn us again and again and again. And friends, God has done that in Jesus Christ once and for all. God has sent someone who's able to turn us and to hold us. Jesus is the smiling, shining face of God. Isn't that wonderful that, that uh, God, we're told in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this, the love of God made, was made manifest, John says, 1 John 4. That God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. That there's no greater evidence of the love of God than the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And it is the evidence of God's love for you. It's not a generic love that's just kind of broadcast like fog out over the world. It is a specific love that chooses you. It's a specific love that gave you to Jesus Christ. A specific love that is committed uh, the, the Savior to save you and the Holy Spirit to hold you in that faith to bring you all the way home. That's the love of God in Jesus Christ, where he takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh so that, so that you do begin to hate your sin and you do begin to love Jesus. And he breaks your bondage to sin so that now as a child of God and one of his sheep, you begin to feed on words of life. This is what God has done for us. And, and Jesus is able to turn us so that we are turned and to, and, and to keep us from turning away. I love the benediction of Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from falling, to keep you from turning away, able to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That's a wonderful promise, and all because of our Lord Jesus. And that means, friends, that we can pray for God to, to hold us fast with great confidence on solid foundations, we can take Psalm 80 and pray to our loving shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life for us. We can pray in the solid foundation of God's own election, that God chose us to be his children before the foundation of the world. And we can appeal to God on the basis of his election. God, you did this work. I did not save me. I didn't choose to be saved. You chose. And so, Father, what you've begun, continue and carry out to the end. You can pray on the basis of all the kingly power and authority that belongs to Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God. And you can pray based on all the promises that God has made to you in Christ. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will care for you. I will sanctify you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing can separate you from my love. It's an incredible thing to be a Christian. It's a wonderful thing to to know that God has turned his face towards us in Jesus Christ and he'll never, ever turn it away. He'll never turn it away. All because of our Savior. And so the question that for you then today is, do you know Jesus? Do you, do you really know Jesus? Do you, do you trust in him? Do you love him? Have you come to him confessing your sin? Are you absolutely sure that if you die tonight, Jesus would receive you with joy? Because you can be sure. And as you... And, 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 and if you've done that, praise the Lord. If you've not, then don't wait. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Make Psalm 80 your prayer. Just come before the Lord and say, Oh God, let your face shine on me that I may be saved, saved, eternally saved. And then as we walk this Christian life together, brothers and sisters, in all the trials and heartaches that we will, we will face, 
No, pray as you pray Psalm 80. God is smiling in the face of Jesus Christ. God has saved you. And God will never, ever, ever turn his face away. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Well, Father, I thank you for this psalm that exposes our great need and shows us our great hope in Jesus. Father, we are people who left to ourselves would destroy our soul in a minute. And I thank you that you are a great shepherd who leads us in love. Father, forgive us for our fickleness, our unbelief, our fear. Forgive us for our besetting sins that trip us up so easily. But Lord, I pray that you'd give us a growing confidence in your love for us, your care for us. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the grace to repent day after day. Give us the grace to turn our heart again back to you and away from our idols. Give us the grace to be humbled. Give us the grace, Lord, to weep with a just God-honoring grief over sin and give us the grace to believe that the gospel is true for us and that we are forgiven, we are loved. And Lord, in that humility and in that confidence, then help us to walk day by day as your sheep until you finally lead us home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, stand together. We're going to sing Psalm 80, Great Shepherd Who Leadest Thy People in Love. Let's stand to sing.
is a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's sing, lead me, Lord, in thy righteousness.